Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. For this episode, I talked to Carrie Wallace. She's the author, among other books, of The Blind Contessa's New Machine, which tells the story of the invention of the typewriter in 1808 by an Italian count for a blind woman so that she could write him letters. It's a love story, but it's also about the imagination and how it fails us. Patti Smith, one of Wallace's heroes, called it an exquisitely written jewel. Now Wallace has trained her focus on artistic inspiration, both how it is historically discussed in relationship to artists and how we as contemporary working artists might honor, cultivate, and capture it. She taught a workshop called The Discipline of Inspiration at the 2019 Glenn Workshop in Santa Fe, and she's working on a book of the same title. Wallace is particularly interested in how spiritual disciplines like silence, contemplation, and living in community map onto the artist's life. She wrote in an essay, all spiritual problems are creative problems, and all creative problems are spiritual problems. An artist's failure to work is rarely mechanical, fingers that fail to curl around a pen or a brush, but spiritual, a fear that has rendered them artistically blind or deaf. The solution to them all is to draw closer to God, the source of all order, rest, and freedom and of every image, sound, and word. We sat down at the Glen to talk about catching inspiration, cultivating community, and how our creative power grows when we discipline our artistic and spiritual lives and begin to see them as one and the same. I was um, always totally fascinated by and had my own sort of weird little relationship with God. And, and actually, that, that one of my major experiences of it um, was that it provoked art. So when I was like six or seven years old, I would wake up and be writing poems that I felt like were being given to me or commanded that made it impossible for me to sleep. Um, and that, those kinds of, I actually experienced them kind of as, a, as like attacks of um, inspiration and that I wasn't looking for and that, that came when I didn't particularly want them and that I was incapable of resisting. So as we drifted into some, I, I think you could probably de- define them as somewhat more conservative varieties of Christianity. <laughs> so we moved from the Quaker church that I'd grown up in in Ann Arbor towards um, more local churches where we could have, and, and we were in a very small town in Michigan, and so there wasn't a whole lot of um, sort of like progressive Christianity in this place. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are a lot of like fervent believers, but the, the sort of like Christian subculture of Christian bookstores and Christian music and all that stuff was starting to emerge around that time. And I was completely baffled by it and mm-hmm. and always felt a little bit like an outsider and um, actually deliberately went to a secular college instead of a Christian college because I knew I would do better swimming against the scream, stream of secular society than I would trying oh. to fit into a Christian um, or a ostensibly Christian um, institution. This constantly trying to fit into some kind of Christian community. Yeah. When really what I... But it's probably better for me to push against my secular impulses yeah. than to try to fit some kind of Christian mold or template. Yeah. Well, and so many of 
my heroes in the faith, at least, are people who never fit, you know, who never particularly fit, or only in a very limited context and sometimes only with their own people, right? Yeah. So tell me about some of those heroes. Um, so one of the ones that springs to mind is Roger Williams, who is the um, basically the author of the idea of religious freedom, who died without a church and who the Puritans put out into the wilderness to die in the snow and was actually re- rescued by Native American tribes who we owe, you know, who the West, the extent that we actually believe in religious freedom at all, which I'm not convinced we do. (laughs) But but that that idea is actually owed to the Native Americans who saved his life. So Wow, what an interesting story. Yeah. So let's start with with your workshop. How you're approaching the idea of inspiring artists. Yeah. Yeah. Um so what I'm actually interested in is is not inspiring, but inspiration. Okay. So I'm, I'm working with ideas from an as-yet-unpublished manuscript called The Discipline of Inspiration, okay. um, which I got interested in when I created a program for working artists to help them build more um, solid creative habits. Mm-hmm. And as a curriculum for that program, I did a, just a giant survey of what working artists had to say about art. And I was pretty out of patience with most of the like classic tomes on how to be um, an artist because they weren't written by Rembrandt or Tolstoy or anybody who I actually wanted to be like. Right? Um, they weren't written by Ralph Ellison. They were. And, right. and so I went on a search for places where people I respected actually had said stuff about their process. And I was interested in a number of things. I was interested in um, the artist's life. Do you have to be unhappy? Um, the artist's character. Do you have to be a jerk? Mm-hmm. The, the purpose of art, the definition of art, um, anything about the artist's spiritual practice. And what I found was a total cacophony of, um, well, actually what I found originally was a whole bunch of like gossip and backbiting. But when you sifted through that, what you got was like diametrical opposition on like how art is made and what it's for and how to define it. And the only point that they all agreed on was the moment of inspiration. And they all talked about it as being something that came from beyond them, something that was better and wiser than them, something that asked them to do things that they didn't expect to do that were even against what they wanted to do. And something that would go on to somebody else if they didn't use it. So you get you get things like Hoga Carmichael, who was the author of um, Stardust and Georgia on My Mind and a bunch of jazz standards, says that great melodies aren't written, they're discovered. Mm-hmm. And Ernest Hemingway says um, when he reads the things that he's written, he can't believe they're so good that he feels like he couldn't have written them, that he probably read them somewhere, probably in the Saturday Evening Post. And um, when Michael Jackson was... Um, preparing for his final tour, actually the one that he didn't get to do, he was uh, feverishly recording and his entourage was worried that he was going to wear himself out before the tour and he kept telling them, my higher power is giving me these songs. Mm. And I said, Michael, can you ask it to give you these songs after the tour? And he said, I can't, then it might give them to Prince. So I got really curious about this and I started thinking about inspiration and realizing in general, we identify artists by their talent, like how easy it is for them to sing in tune or draw a straight line or like write a cogent sentence. And we train them in technique, which is hours spent with a violin in your hands or standing in front of an easel or, you know, 
And but there is a third element, which you, if you have spent any time in the art world, especially, you know that huge amounts of talent and technique on their own or even together are actually not that interesting. Mm-hmm. That there's a third element that's required to light them up, which is what I call inspiration. And that inspiration on its own, even devoid of really much talent or technique, can be very compelling. And that there was virtually no information on this mm-hmm. um, in in the sort of like pedagogy of art, right? Like it doesn't get taught in schools. And to the extent that it does get taught, it's whispered from like, usually student to student, usually even teachers aren't talking about it, but it'll be like, oh, when I get stuck, I take a walk. Or like, I get a lot of my ideas when I'm washing the dishes. Or sometimes I'll, you know. Mm -hmm. um, So they're like clues along the way, but no rigorous thinking Mm -hmm. about what this is. In fact, a lot of woo-woo you know, very pretty and virtually meaningless language surrounding this stuff, Mm -hmm. right? So I started thinking about um, what it was, not wanting to know that in an abstract form, but really wanting to know how to get more of it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that all of the spiritual disciplines that I had used, reaching out to God, trying to get out of the way of a spirit that was coming through me or to me into the world, were also... potentially useful in the life of an artist who wanted to welcome the spirit of inspiration into their life. So I started playing with the idea of how the spiritual disciplines could map onto the artist's life. That's really interesting to think about the idea that if you don't tap into it, someone else would. If you don't receive it, I think that we experience that a lot as envy. Yeah, Um, interesting. And almost terror yeah. of someone else is going to write my book someone else is going to sing my song and it feels really personal like yeah. as if you have to come up with that all on your own but like why do we fear that someone else will come up with exactly our same experience exactly. if it's not some sort of external gift that we are supposed to be receiving but I've never thought of it that way that's really interesting yeah well and actually let me just add one other yeah. thing that no, I think ahead. is kind of important I, I actually think that that element of incarnation means that whatever inspiration comes to us, nobody can steal our book, right? Because only we can write our book. And um, I was telling the students in class a couple days ago that some of my very favorite essays are by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Mm -hmm. And these essays are literally, today I stayed home from church, Mm -hmm. or I went for a walk on the beach. They are the most mundane things you could possibly... They're unpublishable in today's world, right? Mm -hmm. And they are some of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever read and most compelling pieces. You know, they're not just decorative because Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote them and because he brought his observations. I like yeah. this, this this idea of and the knowledge that the spiritual disciplines map onto the artistic disciplines mm-hmm. almost perfectly. Yeah. And there are a couple of books out there, I think, that address that, but don't necessarily give concrete exercises or examples or ways of achieving it. So it's like, what a lovely thought. If I was also a better um, Christian or spiritual, or if I had a better prayer life, maybe that would make me a better artist. Or maybe your artist's prayer is actually what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Right? And, And maybe prayer is an art, and maybe community is an art form, right? And but your art also comes to you through communities. So I think it's a lot more, just a lot more mixed up than we tend to think about it. Yeah, that's beautiful to think that like living more fully as an artist is the spiritual work. Yeah, well, and I also think, to, to be clear, when I say maybe art is prayer, mm-hmm. I mean, my, 
essential definition of prayer. I think if you can only do one kind of prayer, listening is much more important than talking. Yeah. So I think the prayer comes in listening to inspiration, not in, um, it comes primarily in listening to inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a small part that's, that has to do with your speech, but mostly you're responding to or obeying something. And I'm thinking of what you said about when you were a little girl. Yeah. It seems like you've always sort of received yeah. information in yeah. that way. But what are some ways that you protect your your artistic life? Yeah, um, so I'm, to be clear, not perfect at this. And I think all of us just get like a little better. None of us get perfect at it. But I think setting aside time is really important. I think just presence um, is, is maybe the primary thing that we do is just to show up. I mean, personally, I've found that I am more creative and my work is better when Mm -hmm. I'm in a valley. Yeah. Rather than when I feel relatively happy and content. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like, well, what if I don't want to suffer anymore? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Am I going to be able to make anything of value? So you mentioned developing spiritual disciplines that can help you maybe access that space without being oppressed by that yeah. space. Yeah. So I'd love to hear an example of something you feel like is effective in that. Well, first of all, I would say that we're, we're never going to like, none of us are going to get out of life without further suffering, right? So I actually feel like we can work as hard as we want to to escape suffering. That's a good thing to do because none of us are ever going to be able to do it, right? There's no reason to lean into that as artists because yeah. you can't get away from it. It'll come um, for you. That's right. It's yeah. coming. It's coming. Um, so... Um, and that also can ease the anger of us being like, why is this happening? Because it happens to everybody always, right? So we don't need to have so much angst around, like, uh, we just can be grateful when it doesn't happen, actually. But, but spiritual disciplines, I, I think getting comfortable with silence and getting comfortable with solitude are enormously helpful. I think um, doing manual labor of some kind Mm -hmm. has been really useful to me. So I um, often, when I don't want to write, will feel like um, making something else with my hands. So doing Mm -hmm. some, I think for, and I think that some art forms, like it's not clear in writing, but but an artist, for instance, can stretch and and gesso a canvas, right? Mm -hmm. Which can serve as this wonderful time. I actually think that, that manual labor actually provides rest for an anxious mind Mm -hmm. because it gives us the illusion that something is being accomplished Mm -hmm. and then the mind can wander because it doesn't feel this stress that it needs to be doing something Mm -hmm. and and I feel like a lot of stuff comes to people when they are taking a shower or doing the dishes or so so building more of that Mm -hmm. and giving yourself um, permission within the creative process I also will stop I do a two-hour block you know, when I'm writing, but I don't write that entire time. Actually, my deal with myself is not even that I have to write all the time. It's just that I'm not allowed to do anything else. But when I am writing, I often need like two, three breaks during that time, but I don't want to go down a rabbit trail into a book that I'm not going to be able to stop reading or the internet or like mm-hmm. a task that I'm going to want to finish this. So I, I do things like play a single game of computer mahjong or mm-hmm. play a song on the piano or, um, or, or do things that have a clear... Um, beginning and end and are only going to take a, a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. So I think rest is actually, sort of curated rest is an impo- incredibly important um, spiritual discipline. If we build a ritual yeah. into it and treat it as, you know, in a friendly way instead of a guilty way, yeah, it's liberating. How important do you think it is to experience other art forms? I think in its best form, 
um, running into the work of other artists is, is like a conversation with friends. I think it's actually an aspect of community and being um, spurred along and taught and challenged and comforted by other people who have been um, trying similar things that we have. I'm often really inspired by seeing other women show me a different way to be a woman and especially be a, a female artist. And I remember seeing um, Mavis Staples play for the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, this is a totally different way than I've ever seen anybody do this. Mm -hmm. Just the way she carried herself. And it, it changed what I thought the possibilities were for me. But I also think that, um, I think it, it can be a crutch and I think it can be, I think it can be harmful to spend too much time thinking that another artist is going to teach you how to be an artist. I think there's a point at which you just have to do it for yourself. Mm. And, and a point at which no matter how much feedback you've taken from your peers and no matter how much you've read the, the greats, the quote-unquote greats, um, you just have to do what you have. Mm -hmm. And that's super scary. And um, you'll never do anything if you don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, there's a time for being in workshops and apprenticing. Yeah. And then there's a time to get down to the work. So many of my friends, especially my women friends, are struggling through balancing parenting, making a living, trying to make time to care for ourselves in ways you know that have nothing to do with being an artist. It seems like there's just no time or energy left over to devote to being an artist. And I think maybe part of that problem is seeing our art as completely separate from ourselves because we've been trained to think that our domestic lives have nothing to do yeah. with our output. Um, well, first of all, I would tread carefully here because I'm not a mom. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is that they're actually... One of, the, one of, my, class, one of my students was saying, um, was wondering if inspiration speaks to people who are marginalized or if it's, mm. you know... And what I said to him was that some of the art that means most to me in the world has come from marginalized people, right? So I think it's important not to glamorize this stuff or to say that people should remain in these states, but uh, I think American spirituals may be the most important art that America has produced. Mm. The conditions were horrific, but art still, meaningful, lasting, extraordinary art still flowed from people who were not able to go on artistic retreats or make any room for themselves whatsoever. I, and I think, I think women have it... You know, women have it harder in a lot of ways. One of the things my mom always said was that, and she was of this sort of first generation who, who, uh, <laughs> in theory could be anything that they wanted to, but it had all these barriers, you know, that they were facing. And she said, she, in her experience, she said it, it, it was a, a lie and actually a really dangerous lie that women were supposed to be able to be great moms and great at their job and great you know like that nobody else had ever been asked to do that at the yeah. same time before and why should they think that you know modern women should have to do that and so what she said was that women could have everything they just couldn't have it all at the same time one of the things I feel is really sad is that I, I watch a lot of my peers who are female artists are beginning families or having children at exactly the moment that I watch male artists breakthrough yes at exactly the same moment and I personally think that um there's there's that children are an amazing art project I think a long time ago I started getting really frustrated because that's like what did men build everything they wrote all the books and they built all the buildings and what did women do they made all the rules <laughs> and I was like I, and, but I realized I was like women made the human race yeah 
women made everything. Yeah, we made the men. <laughs> yeah. We made, but we made the like we made humanity, not yeah. just the men, right? Like so. Um, and I think the fact that that doesn't get valorized as this incredible art project. And in fact, when you listen to misogyny, it actually does. There's a lot of jealousy from men over the mm. fact that women can make people. Like, yeah. you hear that again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the fact that we don't take that seriously as an art form or that we elevate it to a point where, like, there's this perfection demanded that no, but that just oh, right. creates horrific anxiety yeah. um, for people so they don't get to enjoy what they're doing while right. they're doing it right. um, is, is really a problem. But, but I I also see, you know, so there are women who kind of like fall off the track exactly when men are like barreling forward. But, um, but there are also women who do things at times when you never expect women to do them. So Mm -hmm. one of my favorite writers is Penelope Fitzgerald and she didn't write, start writing until her husband was dying, um, in his sixties. And then she wrote, I'm going to say between like seven and nine of the most perfect novels I've ever read. Wow. And they're all really idiosyncratic and weird. She's a British woman. And I think like she won a couple Booker Awards and she was nominated for a couple other ones. And she wrote them all over 65. Wow. So th- that's another thing I always insist on is that they're like your, your game is not over. Hi, this is Mary Carnegie Mitchell, executive editor of Image. If you love what you hear, read, and experience on this podcast, in our pages, and at our events, would you consider supporting our work with a gift to our fall campaign? Image is a rare phenomenon, and it's only sustainable because of donors who value what we do. We couldn't keep doing this without you. Thank you for your friendship and support. I just want to ask one more question about community. Yeah. Um, because we've talked a lot about the solitude and the stillness and the quiet and the quiet we should be protecting. Yeah. But how important is community? I think community is super important. And, um, and I actually think community is part of what makes the silence and the solitude bearable, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Knowing that you have that to return to. So I think they, I think they undergird each other. So I'm an enormous builder of community and and a great believer in not just accepting what passes for the artistic communities where you are, mm. but in building your own and building ones that seem livable to you. To and in the degree to which, like when you build those things, other people need something different from what's out there, mm-hmm. just as much as you do. Talk to me about the community that you've built. I know you've done this. You've done a couple different things, but I was interested in the community in Michigan. Yeah. So, so a couple of things jump out. One is uh, arts retreat that my brother and I led for. 10 years, we're actually about to do it again this year, called the Hillbilly Underground, mm-hmm. um, which was just started my, as many, many people in Michigan do, there are, my family owns land with a lake on it, because yeah. there are thousands of well, lakes. People you... put trailers on lakes in Michigan. Yeah. Um, people put trailers on the Great Lakes in Michigan. That's mm-hmm. how much lakefront property there is. Yeah. Um, so, but it's beautiful, and people always wanted to come out of it, come out to it, and we uh, and I was noticing that I had lots of friends who had been making art like in high school and college and had stopped making. And so I started a retreat where they could come out and stay at the lake for a week, but the price of admission was they had to make something. Yeah. And um, it just started through friends, but our friends are pretty talented. And when I moved to New York, I started inviting New York people as well. Mm-hmm. And that community did a couple things. One is giving people, just as I was saying, if you give people room to make art, they will find room for the art in their lives. So. 
One of my brother's buddies actually came out, recorded an entire album in a week. Actually, there was a year that my brother recorded an album during the day on our recording equipment, and he recorded, his friend recorded an album in the evening, and at the end of the week, they both had full albums that they played for the group. But that guy quit a job because he was so tired of not being able to make art when he came, because he got a taste of what it was like to be a full-time artist at the Hillbilly Underground. But I also saw it really help the mental health of people who are going through severe problems. Mm. Um, Not actually because people were sitting there listening to them talk, but because they had a place where they had loose connections. And I do not mean to simplify sort of depression and, um, and other... And, and like severe life transitions mm-hmm. to, you know, you can just go out to the farm for a week and everything will be better. But I watched it support people who are going through divorces. I watched it support um, people who are struggling with mental illness. And I, and I have at least one friend who saw that experience as a turning point in, in her depression. Mm-hmm. So a return to herself as an artist and a community that was actually not that interested in her depression. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but was like kind of like, do you want to just go swimming? Yeah. <laughs> and a place where she could just be normal and where everybody didn't know her as the depressed person. Yes. Right. So, it, I know it's not that simple, but for this person, it was a it was a transformational moment. But so. it is to be able to give that gift, and I feel like this has been on the mind of a lot of my artistic community, recognizing the need for those of us who have whatever degree of privilege, whether it is yeah. space. A house on a lake. Yeah. Even a house with four bedrooms that two yeah. bedrooms are empty for a little bit of the summer. Anything, time, money, <laughs> supplies, being able to share that with those who don't and give them the opportunity has been transformative. Yeah. And I I just want to highlight that, the need for that, the deep need for that, for those of us who can provide it, to find ways to share that with other artists or even people who just need a break yeah (laughs) who need a week at the farm a chance to come out and not be identified with your problems that are whatever you're facing in your your everyday community yeah but a little escape hatch yep and what that can do for you so I just admire that you've been able to do that so the other thing that I did was even simpler which was a, a ongoing dinner party called soup Mm-hmm. which started um, when I was in Michigan and my brother and I owned houses within a block of each other and we both had, they were both multi-unit properties and we both had friends living in the units mm-hmm. and one of my friends said I think you should I think we should make soup every week and just have people over by which he meant I think you should make soup every week <laughs> and I should come over and um, so I started making soup and I was super bad at making soup like I was like the, one of the first soups I made was a French onion soup where I was like oh you just deglaze the onions and then you add wine and there were too many people coming so I got like a lot of wine and we did not have enough time to burn the alcohol off so oh, everyone got like no. tipsy it was awful <laughs> Um, but the power of community was such that people still wanted to come back even yeah. after that. And I continued doing that until I left Michigan. I started it immediately. Like the first week that I was in New York, I started doing it with just who the people who I already knew in New York. And that grew by the time I shut it down about 10 years later to almost 200 people on, wow. on the invite list and on any given night between 12 or 15 of them would come. And soup is a perfect food for this because you it's infinitely stretchable. Mm-hmm. And um, you can make it, and it's still fresh and hot if people come at 7 or if they come at 10.30. And um, it's pretty cheap. And I had an incredible group of, uh, like, some people who are now, like, actually quite well-known who came to that um, 
that soup and a lot of people who um, just needed a place to go and a lot of people who creepily every now and then I'm like how do you guys know each other and it's from I was like oh I I introduced you (laughs) whoops Um, but I yeah, but any I think virtually anybody can do that. And it was a great way to welcome... It was a low-cost way. You didn't have to sit down and spend an hour having coffee with somebody. Right. Anyone you met who's interesting, you can invite to soup. Yeah. Tell me... Well, this will be my last question. I yeah. Promise. Just tell me what's next for you in terms of publishing and what we can look for. So I'm, I'm looking at finding a home for the discipline of inspiration, and I'm also will have coming out in the spring a book called Stories of the Saints, which is a, a book of um, stories of the great, the, sort of the most popular Christian saints for children, starting with Polycarp and working all the way up to Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an unusual project because it's coming out from a secular publisher, and it's not meant to be, there's never been like anything like it in the history of books on saints, which have been actually some of the most popular bestsellers in history. Yeah. Um, but they've, they've virtually all been, with the exception of the Golden Legend, which is kind of like um, medieval superhero tales, mm-hmm. um, they have been all focused on like provoking piety in children. Right. And these are just meant to be like delightful stories. Adventure tales. That's exactly movie, right. Yeah. The... the focuses on what were the great stories about yeah. these saints and whether or not they're true they have affected people's lives of faith for mm-hmm. centuries and so there's some kind of underlying truth to them i think yeah. so that'll be out in spring of 2020 and i'm also working on a um my, this may or may not come out as my next novel but i'm working on a book about the greatest train rob- robber in american history who is secretly married to a minister's daughter who may or may not have known he was a train robber when he married her. So wow. that's drafted and needs to be completely redrafted. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie Wallace, oh my gosh, for being for my guest absolutely. for the inspiration. It's great to talk with you. Me too. You've been listening to The Image Podcast. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to spread the word. And please consider giving a gift of any size to our fundraising campaign. For more information on the Glenn Workshop or to subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you can also learn more about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes and links to resources we discussed in the interviews. The Image Podcast is produced by Cassidy Hall and our music is by Sister Sinjin. Join us again in two weeks for further exploration of art, faith, and mystery.